Welcome to Sing Swing Sing in Conversation. In this episode, I'll be talking to three of the UK's most experienced sound engineers, who between them have many decades of experience setting up and recording sound for orchestras and big bands, including live streamed events and albums. They also have vast experience in recording and engineering studio albums. If you're an aspiring vocalist, whatever genre you perform in, you're sure to find this podcast interesting and informative. Paul Forkus is one of the most in-demand live sound engineers in the UK, regularly working for Raymond Gobey Limited Tours and Shows, Claire Teal, Sir Simon Keenleyside, Claire Martin and the BBC Big Band. Also a fine saxophone player, Paul has worked with the Sid Lawrence Orchestra, internationally acclaimed flamenco guitarist Juan Martin and the Bournemouth Symphony Orchestra. I asked Paul to describe the process of setting up the sound for a big band gig. Okay, this isn't a simple uh, question, so I'll break it up into three parts. So normally, uh, part one would be what size is the venue? How big is the stage? Is it a concert hall or a theatre? I get to talk to the client and the venue many weeks in advance, usually, uh, of the concert to talk about this. So. Each element requires a different solution. If it's a 200-seat Concord Club-sized venue, then you can kind of be very minimal sometimes with the approach. Problem with something like the Concord Club is it's a very odd-shaped room. Cadogan Hall, the opposite end of the scale, not a big venue, but fantastically live acoustic. So if you have a rhythm section and a singer, lovely. As soon as you add more than one trumpet, the place becomes a very difficult acoustic, so uh, some reinforcements required. Uh, basic rule is if you don't need it, don't use it. Nine times out of ten, we need some of it. What can usually sound good in a concert hall won't sound good in a theatre. There's a major difference between theatres and concert halls. For a theatre, for example, you have a proscenium arch and flying space above the stage. So quite often uh, what you hear on stage and what you hear front of house is very different. Um, for concert halls, um, it's sometimes very difficult to uh, contain the amount of sound that a big band makes. Uh, the clue's all in the title. It's a big band. So the second consideration then, when all of that taken on board, is what equipment is in-house. A lot of venues and theatres carry a basic stock and we try to use where possible as much as the in-house stuff. But uh, quite simply, most of them don't have the stuff to do anything more than uh, basic speech or a couple of DI boxes for keyboards and that sort of thing. So we either have to hire it in or I su supplement it with some of my stock depending what's missing. Uh, it's normally a mixture of all three. Then the third consideration always is budget. A lot of venues have very strict working hours. So say if there's a big band rehearsal or a call at three o'clock, BBC Big Band for example, normally a three o'clock call, uh, with a three hour rehearsal and then a 7.30 concert. So I'd like to be in ideally about one o'clock, two hours is about enough time with some help to set it all up. But sometimes the venues won't even open till one o'clock, so uh, you're quite often restricted by um, start and finish times of the venues. To get uh, their sound system in place, sometimes you have to pay corkage, you quite often have to pay a fee to use the piano, so all of these things apply. 
quite often I end up putting out the chairs and advising about risers. So there's an element of stage management that comes into it as well. This is something I've learnt on the way rather than being trained, but uh, I've done a few big band concerts, so a rough idea how to lay one out. Chris Traves is an ace musician and producer. Chris is a regular in the pit in West End shows as both a trombone player and musical director, and runs his own recording business, Kenilworth Production Studios. As an award-winning producer-engineer, Chris has recorded, edited and produced music for the BBC productions of Luther, An Englishman in New York and Outcasts, as well as the films Confetti and Miss Pettigrew Lives for a Day. I asked Chris what's the most useful thing a singer can do to help with a time-sensitive sound check. Well, I think sing at the correct show level. When you do a sound check, sing at the level you're going to do the gig at. So many times singers and instrumentalists, particularly brass players who are trying to save their chops, won't, they won't sing at the gig level. Um, you know, the excuse being they're saving their chops. But it's vital for a sound engineer to know the full dynamic range the performance is going to be going to be, particularly the loudest bits. So, you know, don't sing quietly or just tickle it to save your chops. Let them know what it's going to be. And try to get your monitor levels right during the sound check. Please do a loud number with the full band and tell the engineer whether you need more or less in the fold back. Is it toppy? Is it too muddy? Is it too boomy? Do you want reverb or not? That's quite important. Some people love it, some people hate it. So it's much better to spend a little more time on this now than try to communicate from the stage in sign language doing the gig, you know, up a bit, down a bit. It's awful. Well, sound checks can be fraught. As Paul has already explained, the sound engineer can end up being a stage manager as well. And he agrees with Chris. Meaningful communication is the key to sorting any on-stage issues prior to the gig. Communication. Talk to people. Try to vocalise what the issue is. I'd strongly recommend learning a little bit about sound. Um, I know a little knowledge is a dangerous thing, but a little can also go a long way. You don't need a degree in physics. Uh, find a common ground. So things like light and colour, for example, are much more obvious mediums for most non-technical folk to grasp. If you think of a microphone as a torch, a monitor as a speakers and lamps, it makes it much more obvious. Um, if the microphone's not shining at your face, it's not working as well as it could do. You see a lot of people holding the microphone so it shines up their nose, probably not going to get the best sound from that. Um, think of the speakers as being uh, very big torches and smaller torches. Again, if it's pointing at your knees, you probably need to move the box rather than turn it up and things like this. So if you think most people know lighter or darker, and know better about colours. Um, you might not think that uh, it's too orange would be useful, but uh, it means quite a lot to me. A lot of the time as well, we're invariably running behind. And so uh, the more specific you can make your inquiry, generally the better the answer you'll get. Uh, I don't like it probably isn't the best uh, question to ask somebody technical because the next question they'll ask you is what don't you like about it so uh, my only advice really is just talk to one another um, by our nature most technicians and sound engineers want it to be good and want to help you so uh, find a common ground uh, and talk to one another as a singer you want to sound the best that you can 
It's an exposed position. There's nowhere to hide. You're literally sandwiched between a band and an audience. Choosing the right equipment is paramount, but this isn't as straightforward as it sounds. It's all dependent on the sound you make, the venue's acoustic, and the PA system in the venue. As Paul explained when I asked him which vocal mics he would recommend and why. Ah, this is a trick question, isn't it? It depends on the venue, singer, size of the room, proximity to the band, uh, fold back and monitoring requirements. It's not a simple solution. There are popular microphones. The most common and popular is the Shure SM58. It's less than £100, found in nearly every venue, everywhere actually. But not to everyone's taste, but they are very forgiving and very easy to use. Uh, next popular choice would be, again, Shure, but the Beta 87C. These are about £250. Claire Teal, for example, uses one of these. Uh, it's a very natural, bright sound. I think vocalists like it because it gives a clear, natural, present sound. Uh, not as easy to use as the 58, and doesn't always sound good if the system's very bright or the room's very bright. Uh, top end of the scale would be the Neumann KMS 105. These are more than 500 pounds. Again, you kind of got to know what you're doing with one of these, but they sound great, but a lot of money. At some point in your career, you'll probably consider recording your own album. Most singers want to document their work, either as a record of their talent, uh, with a view to making money from sales, or as a calling card to try and obtain future work. Pete North formed his own independent recording label in 2004. Diving Dock Recordings boasts an impressive stable of musicians including jazz greats James Pearson, John Haller and Robert Fowler. Diving Dock have released over 20 albums since their inception and continues to work with artists to showcase their talents. I asked Pete what the key stages are in starting your own record label. Firstly, I'd say you need to know your market. Do you have a specialist genre of music that you'll be focusing on? You need to know that inside out. Chances are, if you're thinking of setting up a record label, you're already either an aficionado or an artist in that particular style of music. Next, what's your motivation for starting a label? There are already thousands out there, so what's driving you or what's unique about your ideas and approach? If you're clear about your intentions from the beginning, that will help you to find the information you need to make a simple start and find your feet and not to spend money on something that would be irrelevant to the direction you're aiming to go. Very importantly, you need a solid understanding of music copyright to protect both your rights in the recordings that you intend to sell and promote and also to protect the rights of the musicians and the composers of those musical works. To put it simply, uh, the record label will have legal rights and protections over the actual recordings and how they can be used and distributed. The musicians have legal rights over their performance in the recordings, not just financial, but the way you and others may use them. And the writers of the music also have legal protections when you're using their work. The artist and composer may, of course, be the same person, but the respective rights are effectively treated separately. There are lots of nuances to these copyright issues, but luckily there are plenty of free resources to help guide you and it's uh, pretty easy to get it right. It's good to read as much as you can to get a good grasp. Then you'll have the confidence to feel you're representing your artists and labels interest properly. Make the most of the guides and information on websites for trade bodies such as PRS for Music and PPL UK, 
which between them protect, register and license uh, the rights for live and recorded music. When it comes to the artists signed to your label, signing basically means they're contracted to produce recorded music for your record label, whether that's exclusively for a period of time or a number of recordings, or as a one-off. You need an agreement that clearly states how the profits from sales will be divided between you, the label, and the artist, and also what profit means. There are many stories of uh, record companies piling on expenses and deductions thereby reducing the profit that will be shared with the artist. Keeping it clear and fair can avoid arguments about that sort of thing, potential big legal costs and falling out with your artist. Again, there are lots of resources around that give examples of what's seen as a fair deal for both record label and artist. Well, you might not be thinking of starting your own label, but it's useful to know what has to happen behind the scenes. So when a singer wants to record an album, How should they go about it? And who should they approach? So when it comes to recording first album, it's good to have a demo of a few of your strongest songs that you can circulate to record labels, producers or managers. Um, A demo doesn't need to be full production quality. It can be to backing tracks or recording of a live gig. If it reaches the ears of someone at a label, they will know what they're listening for beyond recording quality. Um, It's very difficult to get a record deal this way, though. You're asking someone to invest financially in you, someone they don't know, and they get bombarded this way continually by many singers and bands trying to get a break. If you have the budget to pay for a professional recording yourself, then this is a good way onto a small labels catalogue as you take a big financial consideration off their hands. You could then negotiate a more favourable profit share to take into account your initial burden of the costs. Make sure you're approaching a record label that fits stylistically with you. Don't spend time wooing a hip-hop label if you're a Bing Crosby-style crooner. If you're intending to record your album or part of it before approaching a label, look at and maybe ask where similar artists to you have recorded their music and by whom. Musicians that you work with can be a veritable mine of information with suggestions of places and people they've recorded with, good value studios that get a great sound, or a good producer or arranger that can make the whole process easier for you through their experience. It's free to ask and musicians generally enjoy sharing their knowledge and experience. Right then, you've got your album planned out and you're heading into the studio for the first time. What advice would Chris Traves give to a singer coming in for their first recording session? Uh, what I was told when I first started, um, first rule of showbiz, keep your mouth shut. And it's uh, funny, but it's true. Uh, concentrate and get on with it. You're much more likely to be asked back if you're simply good at your job. Don't waste time with idle chat or stories. Just get on, just get on with it. Do the gig. Because time really is money in these situations, you know. Um, save the gags for the pub later. Don't keep saying sorry. Um, so many people, you know, make a mistake. They go, oh, sorry, sorry. No one cares. Everyone makes mistakes in a session. That's why we do multiple takes. Just say, oh, sorry, I messed that up. I just said sorry, didn't I? <laughs> but try to avoid saying sorry. You know, politely ask if you could do that take again or drop it in again later. Um, but don't keep apologising. So you've been into the studio and you've recorded your album. Now you need to get it out there. Now there are costs involved. So what are the main financial considerations when planning a CD release? 
Often uh, a band or an artist uh, will come to a label with an album they've already recorded and just require you as the label to deal with the music licensing, CD pressing and promotion and distribution stages of the release. Um, But if the label's involved from step one of the recording and production of the CD, then roughly in order of when you'll need to pay the bills... If you're using an arranger for the music being recorded, you'll need to commission them as the first step. Often uh, a band or an artist will already have the arrangement, songs, works, whatever, ready to record. And this may be an expense they've already already covered. Next up is the recording costs. Um, The cost to hire a recording studio and an engineer, Uh, musicians, musicians. If you're using a backing band, a producer who could be somebody independent or someone the artist choose or or someone from the label. And then uh, you'll need engineers to mix and master the results of the actual recording process. Costs and budgets of all of this vary hugely and will come down to how... Uh, how you decide to get the best sound and performance out of your artist within your budget. So there's huge amounts to research here and discuss with the artists and, uh, and whoever holds the purse strings for your budget. Once you have the final recordings, you need to properly license the use of the music. Um, composers need paying for the use of their work and this is done online through MCPS in the UK. Every country, every territory has its own bodies that deal with that protection of composers rights the cost of this is usually based on eight and a half percent of your cd's cost price to retailers that's the uh, the published dealer price and is then multiplied by the number of cds that you get pressed um, whether or not you actually sell them then there's artwork design and the pressing of the physical discs themselves. Again, artwork costs vary hugely between something the artist might produce themselves for next to nothing or uh, hiring a professional graphic designer. It's important to include all your copyright notices about the music rights in the correct places on both the disc and any booklet or sleeve. And also many companies that press CDs also provide an in-house graphic design service to work with your ideas or basic designs and also make sure everything's laid out correctly um, before it goes to press. Then the cost of pressing the actual CDs. The more you have manufactured in one go, the lower the per unit cost will be, but then you'll pay more in MCPS royalties as that's based on the number of units that you have pressed. So those are the major expense considerations in uh, production of a CD, Um, and then come the promotion and distribution stages so that people actually know about and can buy your album and you can recoup all of those costs. Well, I've no need to tell you how badly the coronavirus has decimated the live gig scene in 2020 and it looks as though 2021 will be just as badly affected. But the creative industries are just that, creative. Musicians, bands and singers have found new and inventive ways of showcasing their work and potentially earning some money while doing so. Shows and performances streamed on Zoom, Facebook, Instagram and other platforms have become commonplace as we look as an industry to retain a connection to our audiences. So how does a performer go about arranging a streamed gig and what are the potential pitfalls to avoid? That's tricky. Um, Currently streaming is our only way of performing to a live audience, uh, which is horrid. Um, So do take your time to get it right. 
they'll just put up a device like an iPhone and hit go live and then start singing because it's not going to look good, it's not going to sound good because you need to have a decent mic. It's probably best to get some help, particularly if you're using live musicians too. So mic up the band correctly, use a decent mic yourself and then everything would be, need to be mixed. Uh, you're going to need to use a computer, like Logic or something like that, or mix it on a mixer and feed it into a computer. And then that needs to be sent to streaming software such as OBS, which is excellent, by the way, and it's free, completely free. OBS, it's a broadcasting software, PC and Mac. It's excellent. Um, it's also a good idea to have more than one camera. So an OBS can accommodate multiple cameras, um, which is excellent too. But you'll probably need someone to operate it. So don't try to do it on your own. Get someone to look after the cameras, look after the audio. Another excellent streaming service is Restream, uh, which enables you to stream simultaneously to different hosts like Facebook and YouTube and Twitch. Um, the thing wrong with Restream is they do charge a monthly subscription, but you can pay by the month. So I think it's 30 quid. You get a whole month for it. If you're going to do a couple of streams, it's worth doing it. And then you can stream simultaneously to all of the social media sites. So there you go. Or you can ask me to do the streaming for you if you want. I'm quite happy to. Well, I hope you found this Sing Swing Singing Conversation podcast both interesting and informative. I'd like to thank Chris Traves, Pete North and Paul Forkus for being so generous with their time and expertise. Please check out the other podcasts in the series, our YouTube channel, hashtag Sing Swing Sing, and our website, www.singswingsing.com. Thanks for listening. <laughs>